Amen and amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119. verse 81. Let's draw near to God together in prayer. O Lord our God and our Father in heaven, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We will say to you, O Lord, that you are our refuge our strength, our help in tight places, always close at hand. For it is you who delivers us from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Under your wings, O God, we seek refuge, and you shelter us under your pinions, and your faithfulness is our shield and our bulwark. And therefore, we will not be afraid of the terror of night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. We we will only hear with our eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, but it will not come near us. No, no, No true plague, no eternal evil, no unmeant for good trial shall ever enter into our lives. And so we pray, Father, for grace and for faith. Without faith, It's impossible to please you. He that comes to you, O Lord, must believe that you are and that you reward those who diligently seek you. So we pray this evening, O God, that we would have the faith not to doubt in the darkness the things you have told us in the light. We know many of your people here this evening and absent as well, Father, from our congregation at the moment are going through grievous trials and burdens and troubles and afflictions, O God. And we pray the truth of your word this evening will give us enduring grace to keep on and to press on and lay hold of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For all of the promises of God are yea and amen in our Savior. We pray for grace this evening, O Lord, to trust them and to hope in them. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 81. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your Word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts in your steadfast love and your chesed. Give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. 
Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, uh, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, this is the third consecutive paragraph in which we find the psalmist in trouble attacked by insolent men who are full of themselves and empty of God. But tonight it's different. We've seen him in the dust before. We've seen him under the chastening hand of God before. But tonight we find him at the end of his tether. This is rather graphically borne out by the Hebrew. Three times the verb to be at an end is found in the Hebrew. And the word can be translated to long for something. It's, it's to long for something for so long that you're almost at the end of your tether, like if you're swimming underwater doing one of those swim tests. We've got to swim 25, or if you really fit, 50 meters underwater, right? And you're maybe 15 feet or 20 feet from the end of the pool, and your lungs are bursting. You're at the, you're at the end of yourself. You're longing for the, for the wall to come up and breathe. That's the idea. And the verb to describe that is three times found in this word, in this um, psalm. Verse 81, you could uh, translate it, my soul is at the end of itself waiting for your salvation. Then in verse 82, again he says, my eyes are at the end of themselves waiting for your word. My, my vision's almost lost. I've almost gone blind looking for your word to come true, he says. And then in verse 83, um, no, it's not 83, it's 87, I think. They have almost made an end of me on the earth. They've almost made an end of me. It's the same verb in the Hebrew. The psalmist finds himself at the end of his tether. It reminds me of the story, the true story in the book Touching the Void by Joe Simpson that recounts um, his and Simon Yates' near-fatal descent um, of Suila Grande in the Peruvian Andes, and it was in 1985, and they'd reached the summit, and as they descended from the top, as they're coming down, one of them, I forget who it was, fell into a crevasse, and the crevasse, they, they fell all the way down and in ice and into the darkness, and they landed on a, on a, on a ledge um, 150 feet or so down into this crevasse, and his partner above was sure he was dead. And he went on down the, the, the mountain in blizzard, blackout, whiteout conditions. And this climber stuck there in this ledge, and his arm is broken, and his ribs are broken, and he's twisted his ankle badly. And uh, he knows there's no way he can climb up. So he looks over the edge, and there's the, 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 the crevasse just disappears into the darkness. And he's several hundred feet of rope over his shoulder. And so he manages to put his ice hook into, the, into the, uh, the, the ice wall with his good hand and ties um, a, a bowling knot, a, a knot around the, the ice hook, and he throws the, 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 the free end of the rope into the darkness. And before he does that, he thinks to himself, what if the, I mean, he had no idea what's down there. Is there any way out at the bottom of this crevasse? And he thought to himself, what if I get to the end of the rope? And he thought of Roosevelt's famous saying, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And he thought to himself, well, I've only got one arm. <laughs> I don't really like the idea of hanging on you know, with, this, with this knot. So he made the decision to leave no knot at the end of the rope. 
and he kind of abseils into the darkness, not knowing what will happen. And will he get to the end of the rope? And when he does, will there be any bottom to put his feet on? And in God's amazing providence, as he gets down to the bottom, the rope is long enough, he gets to the bottom, and there's a tunnel, and he crawls through the tunnel, and eventually there's light, and out of the light he gets out, and he crawls down to base camp, a broken man, but he eventually uh, survives. Well, the psalmist is climbing, he's feeling himself um, abseiling, as it were, down a rope into the darkness, and is there a knot at the end of his rope? Will God be there for him? That's, the, that's his mind. He's at the end of his tether, and he doesn't know what to do, but he knows where to go. He feels at an end of himself, and yet as he, as he meditates on his extremity, he remembers these bedrock spiritual realities, that though he feels himself to be at the end of himself, at the end of his tether, yet there are certain things he can trust in, certain realities that will never come to an end. And there's a bunch of them here uh, in this text. First of all, he remembers that prayer will never come to the end, that hope will never come to the end for the Christian, that comfort will never come to the end, that order will never come to the end, and duty will never come to the end, and God's hesed will never come to the end. It'll never wear out. Let's walk through these these bedrock um, certainties of the Christian life. So, the psalmist here is indeed in difficult situations. Behind him are pursuers. Um, When will you judge those who persecute me, he says. They're hounding him down. Ahead of him are pits they have dug. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, he says in verse 85. He can hear the ones coming after him, but he can't see the pits ahead of him. They're there, ready to trap him. And God seems to be doing nothing. How many days will you keep your servant hanging on, is the idea. Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who are persecuting me? Everything is coming unglued. Everything is coming to an end. His life, God's salvation, even God's promises seem to stand unfulfilled. And yet he says, though I am at the end of my tether, and my resources have come to the end, yet there are these six things that I'm certain will never come to the end. And let's work through them together this evening. First of all, prayer has not and will not ever come to an end for the Christian. There's always place for prayer, no matter how dark our circumstances. And we see that in every verse of this paragraph. What's he doing? He's praying. He's calling upon God. Listen over his shoulder as we hear him pray. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. That's the first verse. Look at the last verse. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The amazing thing here is, here's a man surrounded by enemies at the end of his tether in great difficulty, and yet it's one of the constant lessons of the psalmist. More than anything, he wants God. 
When we're in trouble, it's common. We want to be out of trouble. We want God to deliver us. We want salvation. But the psalmist more and more wants God to come to him, God to come in his saving presence and in his mercy and with his loving kindness. It's one of the great lessons. We seek the Lord first and foremost, not an absence of trouble, but more of God, more of God. The psalmist is calling out to God at the end of his tether. And that's one of the great lessons I think this evening I want you to take home with you, that the Christian, the instinct of the Christian, in sunshine and in shadow, in difficulty and in delight, is to seek the face of God and to call upon His name and to, to um, process the realities of life in a Godward direction. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. We face life best when we face God first. And though the psalmist at the end of his rope, holding on to the knot of God's Word and the knot of God's promise, he's there at the end calling upon God. And that's something, children, I want you to remember. No matter how dark your life is, no matter how difficult, no matter how overwhelmed you are, no matter how um, bewildered you feel, there's always a place for the Christian to turn to God and to call upon God and to, and to cry out to Him, bow down thine ear, O Lord, to me, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. There is no pit so deep, no difficulty so dark that we shouldn't turn from it to seek the face of God. Here's the psalmist, and it's encouraging. When you see the psalmist in these difficulties, you know, we, we, we find the psalmist at times delighting, ravished by a sense of God's presence. God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing from me, he says in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs for God, he says. And there's times you'll find the psalmist enveloped in the sweet presence of God and enjoying it and, and feeling himself by the river of living waters. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, he says in Psalm 46, when he's being still and knowing that God is God, right? There's times you'll find that, but you'll find the same psalmist in times of utter abandonment, when God seems a million miles away, when God seems disinterested and lethargic and slow to remember His promises. That's encouraging. In those moments when He feels abandoned, like in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels forgotten. He feels forsaken. His enemies are triumphing over Him. And yet in that very moment, our doctrine of inspiration reminds us that in that moment, as He's writing words, chronicling His God-forsakenness, where are those words coming from? They're coming from the Holy Spirit, inspiring Him to write those words in the darkness, that God is always much closer than He feels. The psalmist felt forsaken, but in his heart, whether he knew it or not, the spirit of inspiration was filling him, inspiring him, enlightening him, strengthening him, and giving him words to say in his own darkness that you might have words to sing in your darkness. And I think that's pretty encouraging that God is always much closer than 
he feels. That prayer is not merely for times when you feel God is near. That prayer is for a time and is to be used even when you can't feel God listening, when God seems to have abandoned you, when God seems to have forsaken you. It's then and in those moments that we must not despair of prayer. We must give ourselves to prayer. The utility of prayer, the power of prayer, will never come to an end. And Christ, of course, the only one of God's children who ever was truly forsaken, shows us that even in the cross, submerged beneath 10 billion lifetimes worth of sin, cast off by God, cast out by God, out of God's love, into God's wrath, even then our great Savior shows. How do you respond when you're in hell? You face hell best when you face God first. He turns to God with the words of Psalm 22 in his mouth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, he knew the answer to that question, but he's praying in the depths of hell, the only one of God's children ever forsaken, yet he's praying in his God-forsakenness. And so, Christian, even in those times when you feel forsaken, especially in those times, those are times when God is calling you to pray, and the power of prayer has not run out. It has not come to an end. The second reality that never comes to an end for Christian is hope. Hope, the psalmist realized, has never come to an end. He's at the end of his tether, waiting, longing for God to do something, for God to do anything. And he says in verse 81, my soul has come to an end, waiting for your salvation. But, he says, I hope in your word. Hope is there. He hasn't lost hope. Hope is there. Hope is never dead when it's united to God's promises. I hope in your word, he says. It's almost as if he says, it doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what's going on around me. I know I can still trust your promises, Father. You seem to have forsaken me, but I know you'll never forget your promises. They will never fail. And Christian, the second lesson in the psalm this evening is that if you set your hope on the Word of God, on the promises of God, you have a foundation that will never fail you. I say this reverently, to hell with your feelings, to hell with your fears. God's promises are certain. They are true. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus says, but not one jot and not one tittle shall pass away from your law until all is fulfilled. Adoniram Judson, the famous missionary, said, Christian, your future is as bright as the promises of God. I said before to you as Christians, you look behind you, what do you see? Goodness and mercy following you. God's two sheepdogs trotting along behind you. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Look ahead of you, Christian. What do you see? A future bright with the promises of God. All of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And with these promises before you, 
you can never, ever lose hope. Many times, to be sure, you will have to wait for God to keep His promises. But He will not leave you waiting forever. And while you're waiting, you can have eternal comfort and good hope. It's been said all of the darkness in the universe cannot extinguish the light of one candle. All of the trouble in the universe, all of the powers of hell, all of your fear, all of your doubt, all of your insecurity, even the hurricanic force of trial cannot overturn the power and the, and the certainty of one of God's promises. And you know that, Christian, because all of our hopes flow from the day of the deepest and most terrible darkness the world ever saw. All of our hopes flew from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope springs eternal where the blood of the eternal soaked into the dust of Palestine, God's own Son dying in the darkness, consumed by the wrath of God, crushed under the burden of the curse due our sin. And there's evidence, God's most expensive promise. If you kept that promise, He'll, kept, he'll keep any promise. He'll keep every promise. In his book, Deserted by God, Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of the first physician in Great Britain to die of the AIDS virus. He was a young Christian, and he caught the virus while he was doing medical research in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. In the last days of his life, his power of communication has failed, and he struggled with increasing difficulty to even speak or mouth words, so he would write on a, on a, on a pad messages to his wife. And near the end of his, near the end of his life, he could only write um, one letter, and it was the letter J. And his wife was concerned that he was um, talking about some medical um, Issue. So she ran and got Dorland's medical dictionary and looked up to J and went down and tried to, 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 to kind of list every J that seemed relevant to the situation. And each J he would shake his head, shake his head. And finally, in despair, she thought, J, Jesus. And he, shook, he, he nodded his head. And she realized what he was saying to her was, Jesus is here and Jesus is enough. And I hope in him. And that's the psalmist's message here to us this evening. My soul longs for your salvation. I'm at the end of myself. I feel as if I'm gasping for breath. My soul is withering. God seems to be doing nothing, and yet even there he has hope because his hope is founded upon his faith in God's Word. And sometimes you hear people say, God says it, and I believe it. That settles it. That's bad theology. No, God says it, and that settles it. No matter what we feel, no matter what we believe, when our faith fails, God's Word remains true. And so here's the psalm at the end of himself, at the end of his tether. The power of prayer has not come to an end, and the power of hope has not come to an end either. And then thirdly, the certainty of comfort 
has not come to an end either. Verse 82 and 83. My soul longs for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. The psalmist has passed, you might say, the first test. What do you do when God's saving presence seems to be absent? Well, you hope in God's Word. Simple. But what do you do when God's Word seems to be coming late? When God is delaying and waiting, and you feel like a wineskin being smoked in a smoker, withering and desiccating and drying up? It's a powerful picture of a soul withering, waiting for God. Samuel is saying, I, I've been watching, I've been waiting, and nothing's happening. What do you do? Where do you find comfort? Well, in a sense, you learn the link between supplication and respiration. Respiration. Can you see the air you breathe? No, you don't. But you suck it into your breath, into your, into your, um, into your lungs. Again and again, you can't see the air, but you suck it in. And you live on it, and you depend upon it. And likewise, you can't always see the fulfillment of God's promises. You may be waiting and longing, but the psalmist says, do you notice, when will you comfort me? He doesn't say, will you comfort me? There's no if. It's a question of when, not if, in this situation. And that's the way it is with God's promises. We, we hope in unseen things. We've never seen the glories of heaven. We've never seen final judgment. We've never seen the coming of Christ in heaven and hell fleeing from Him and the wicked calling upon the mountains to fall upon them. These are unseen realities, but the hand of faith reaches through all of the things we can see and lays hold of what we can't see, the truth of God, and the things become real as we lay hold of them. So the psalmist knows, even though God is delaying long and comfort seems never to be coming, yet he knows that one day it will come. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. When will you come? When will you come? And notice the psalmist knows where the comfort will come from. It must come from God or it will not come at all. When will you comfort me? The Puritans had a wonderful saying on assurance. When Christians were struggling, filled with doubt, am I saved? Am I lost? How's my soul doing? Where am I at? What's God doing? And the Puritans would say, speak no peace to your soul until God speaks it. And the psalmist here is aware of that. He's, he knows that what he needs is God more than anything else, not the absence of the wicked, but the presence of God. When will you come? He knows He will come. God has promised to come. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so He knows it's never a question of if. When you're dealing with God and the comfort of the gospel, it's always a question of when.
So the power of prayer has not come to an end. The certainty of hope has not come to an end. And the reality of comfort has not come to an end. When? Thirdly, he says, order has not come to an end. God's providential order. Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Think about that. What lies behind that verse? What, if you like, are the, are the presuppositions, the foundations of the worldview behind this prayer? Is it not that the psalmist is certain that God is the one who sets the boundaries for my affliction? The time set for the beginning of his affliction and the end of his affliction is set by God. He says, how long must I endure? When will you judge? He's aware that there is a judge behind the universe. There's a sovereign gubernator, a helmsman is the word. Gubernator is the word for a helmsman in the Greek, or the Latin, sorry. Uh, there's, there's one holding the tiller of the cosmos, guiding my life, setting the times, the seasons of my afflictions. When God opens, none can shut, and when God shuts, none can open. That's the conviction of the psalmist. My times are not in the hands of Satan. They're not in the hands of luck or fate. My times, my troubles are in God's hands. The first time I preached on this was in the prayer meeting way back in Yazoo City in 2002, uh, whenever the sniper up in New York was killing people um, with his rifle. And it seems so random, people filling gas, being shot by this man. And no one knew, knew who he was at that time or where he was shooting from. It was a time of great insecurity. People were frightened. Every time they stepped out of their house, they were wondering and worrying, was there a crosshairs on their head, as it were, as they walked about doing their business? It was so random, so, um, so uh, without rhyme or reason. People were frightened and they were terrified. And there were lots of pastors and theologians trying to distance God from any involvement in those people's deaths, as if, as if it was only the hand of Satan, only the hand of this wicked sniper, only the hand of blind chance. Remember um, one of my friends at the, in Savannah, her, she, was a, um, she was married to a seminary student who was going to Erskine, and Erskine Seminary, and he was driving back one night from seminary, and he was crossing a four-way stop, and he was in due order. He was crossing, and a log truck came and didn't see the stop sign, and just breezed right through the stop and T-boned um, his pickup truck, and he was shattered and crushed uh, almost beyond life. And the doctors worked for hours to save him in the OR, and eventually they couldn't save him, and he died. And one of her friends was a Christian lady from the charismatic faith, and she um, called Elaine and said, Elaine, I've got, I've got a word from God for you, a providential word God has given me. And he told me, I want you to know I had no part in Bruce's death. And Elaine said to her, what comfort am I supposed to find from that? God had no part? Am I to believe that, that there are random forces at work in the universe that can up end God's plan for 
Bruce's life, for my life, for our children's lives? No, she said, I know our times are in God's hands. All of the days that were ordained for us were written in God's book before there was one of them. And while the carelessness belonged only to the driver of that log truck, the carelessness belonged to him. The summons to eternity that called Bruce home to God belonged entirely to the Father in heaven. God had said, My, your husband has reached the end of his life. There was a line across his path beyond which he could not go, a line ahead of all of our paths. Until we reach that line, no man can touch us. But once we reach that line, no man can save us. And in a similar sense, up in New York, when those snipers were killing innocent civilians, the wickedness belonged only to those men. They were the ones aiming. They were the ones selecting the lady at the Kruger doing her groceries or the man filling up his gas tank at the gas station. They selected the target as randomly and as wickedly and as wantonly as they did. It was them. The sin belonged to them, but the summons to eternity belonged entirely to God. That's the worldview here of the psalmist as he cries out to God, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? He knows the judge of all the earth will do right. It's only a question of when, never a question of if. And so at the end of his tether, with pits before him and pursuers behind him, and he feels at the end of himself, and God seems to be doing nothing. He's aware the power of prayer has not come to an end. The the certainty of hope has not come to an end. The reality of comfort has not come to an end. God will comfort him when he comes. And the, and the foundation of order, providential control, has not come to an end. There is a judge in heaven who sees what these wicked people are doing. And God has not vacated the throne of the universe. And as R.C. Sproul says again and again, there's not one maverick molecule, not one maverick um, cancer cell in all of the world. And I was telling our dear sister Joy that recently as she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And some of you, I'm sure many of you know, um, she had signs of her cancer a full year ago when she went to a doctor in the town, and the doctor missed the signs. And they were the kind of signs that any doctor should have seen. And missed them for a whole year before they came to light. She even asked him, could this be breast cancer? And he said, no, no, it's not. It's just a a small skin rash, nothing to worry about. And he missed it for a year. And then it it comes to light now a year later that um, she has cancer and and more advanced than it would have been had it been caught a full year before. And and as I was talking to Patrick and Joy, I said to them, you know, two things are true. That doctor made a terrible mistake. And he bears massive responsibility for missing what no doctor ought to have missed. When I was back in Northern Ireland, I spoke to several of my, my medical friends from medical school. We were having a, a get-together, um, and we were talking, and I, I outlined the conditions that all of them, a GP and several surgeons, all said, that's breast cancer till proven otherwise. They were just horrified. He missed it. And so it's, it's a serious miss, and yet that's true. But at the same time, God is sovereign, 
And God hid it from him, and God hid it from, from you for a year. Not because God hates you, not because God's angry with you, but because Yahweh is afoot, working His sovereign will. Nothing, neither death nor life, nor doctor's correct diagnoses, nor doctor's incorrect diagnoses, the wisdom of men, the folly of men, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As you hold these two truths in your hand, the failure of men, the mistakes of men, and the wisdom and the purpose and the plan of God, you've got to, you've got to put the full weight of your soul on your heavenly Father. This past year, God wasn't pacing the throne of the universe, worrying and wondering, why can't we find a competent physician on earth? He knew what He was doing as He, as he caused um, this trial and measured this trial with an eye and a heart that is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to cause you a needless tear. Trust Him. Lean upon Him. His promises are yea and amen and will never be forfeited yet. The faithfulness, the order, the providential control of Almighty God. And then, fifthly, duty has not come to an end. Duty, the reality, the imperative of duty has not come to an end. Look at verse 83 and verse 87. For I have, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. And then verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. These two verses focus on duty. I'll not forget your statutes. I'll not forsake your precepts. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the verses, if you think of those as two pieces of bread, look at the meat and the cheese in between. Verse 84 to 86 you see how the psalmist surrounds his complaint about the wicked with his commitment to obey God's law? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me in the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. The meat and the cheese is these wicked people attacking him, but the bread holding it all together is my commitment to obey you, O God. It's almost as the psalmist is saying, it doesn't matter what they do. I know what I must do. They may attack me, and you may seem, O God, to delay from helping me, but I am committed to not forsake, not forget, and not forsake your commandments. And that's convicting. How many times have we waited for God to help us? Maybe you're a young man, you've been waiting for God to provide a wife for you. And you haven't, no wife's come. You're longing, you're waiting, you're praying. You've said, Lord, 
How long will you forget me forever? And there's no answer. And then the devil comes along with pornography, or maybe an unbelieving girl who seems ready and waiting to welcome you into her bed, and it seems so attractive to you. God has forsaken me. God's forgotten me. I'll take matters into my own hands and find satisfaction for my, my needs myself. How many men have fallen into that mindset? God is delaying. I'll find another way to, to satisfy my commands. Even, God's, even Abraham of old, God delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed in his promise to give Sarah a child. And so Sarah and Abraham think, I know, we've got a better idea. Here's Hagar. Take her. And that must be what God was intending all along. Let's have children through her. And Ishmael came into the world. And all of the darkness and difficulty that lad has brought to the world to this day. A picture of what happens when we forsake and forget our duty to obey God and to wait for God come what may. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey my God. He doesn't raise his hand to curse God. He raises his fist in commitment to obey God. On Sunday, December 27th, 1562, Calvin recorded this entry in his diary. God holds me bound in shackles. The acute pains have gone, but I can hardly creep across my bedroom from the bed to the table. I did preach today, but I was carried to the church. Agony. Carried to the church he was. Near the end of his life, one of his servants passed Calvin's bedroom door, and he, he heard the old man on his, on, his, on his knees by his bedside, crying out in agony, Lord, I am crushed. But as long as it is thy hand that crushes me, it's enough. That's faith. It's a picture of the psalmist here clinging to God, determined to obey God, even though God may seem to have forsaken me and seem to have forgotten me, I will not forsake Him, and I will not forget, forget the pathways of obedience to His commandments. Calvin and the psalmist had learned Job's lesson, though He crushed me, yet will I cling to Him. Right? Or Job later on when he says, I go forward, but God's not there. Backward, I cannot find him. He acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He acts on the right, I cannot see him. He's like a man in the forest with a little campfire, and he hears beasts all around his camp. But he can't see them, but he can hear them in the darkness. And that's the way Job was experiencing God. He's there, and God's at work around him in the undergrowth. He can kind of have some inkling God is doing something. It's agonizing. It's painful. But he can't quite see what God is doing doesn't know what God is doing. And then he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. And my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and will not turn aside. I have treasured the commands of his mouth more than my necessary food. Here's Job, a man God stripped him of everything. And yet he's still treasuring obedience in the law trusting the God he can't quite seem to find in the midst of his trial. That's a lesson for you, Christian. That this is situation normal, not messed up. Our situation normal, all not messed up. 
no matter how bad things are, no matter how difficult things are, keep your mind focused on God. Wait for Him and determine that whatever, wherever, wherever now finds me, whatever times are upon me, now is always a time for obedience. Just simply doing what God says because God says it. It's one of my greatest vexations with Baxter. I tell the dog to sit. I leave the room and come back. He's away doing his own thing. If there's food on the table and I leave my lunch, I left my lunch on the table. It's my lunch. The dog saw me put the lunch on the table. I ran into the bedroom to get my cell phone, came back, and the dog had eaten half my sandwich. And he looked at me, shaking with fear. He knew he was wrong. His conscience afflicted him, but he still did it. When I went out, he ate the lunch. I could have shot the dog. I didn't shoot the dog. He's still alive. But it is unbelievable. Like, it's like, how stupid an animal. I leave for five seconds. He does his own thing. And we're just the same. God seems to leave. He seems to forget. He seems to forsake us. He's testing us. He's pretending to hide. And in the moment we despair and just give ourselves over to disobedience and, and rebellion and do our own thing. And the psalmist points us to a, a better way. And then lastly, the last reality that has not come to an end is chesed. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Most things in life have a limited range. Like your, like your key fob, you walk into the store and it's raining and you're standing there at the door going, and nothing happens. You've got to walk out in the rain, keep on doing it, and you're getting soaked, and eventually you get near the car, and he goes, beep, and you go, thank you, and you walk back into the thing. Most things in life have a limited range. We have a prayer meeting in the mornings on Sunday. I put my earbuds in. I'm getting ready to get out, hearing people pray, and I walk into the kitchen to get the coffee, and I lose my elders praying. The, the Bluetooth signal's gone, 30 feet or so, and you lose it, right? Most things in life have a limited range, but not the loving kindness of God, not God's stubborn determination to do you good. The psalmist is at an end of himself, at the end of his tether, hanging in the darkness, but he knows there is no pit so deep where God's chesed love is not deeper still. And he cries out to it, I've come to an end, O God, but I know your love, your stubborn determination to do me good, no matter what I deserve no matter how much it costs, no matter how long it takes, you will deal with me lovingly and kindly in steadfast and certain and sure love. It's the lesson Jeremiah learned in the pit, in the cistern of Malchijah. And you can find that in Jeremiah 38, but we're not going to read that this evening. No time. But you remember he was thrown into the pit and left there. And he describes his experience in, in Lamentations 3, 52. He says, My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. Now, he's in a sewer. This is not water, you understand. Waters flowed over my head. I said I am cut off. That's what he felt. I said I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit, and you heard my voice. You drew near when I called on you, and you said to me, don't be frightened. 
Don't be frightened. See how different our feelings are from reality, how appearance is from reality. The prophet Jeremiah was certain God had forgotten him, God had forsaken him. He was out of range of God. I am forgotten, he said. I am forsaken. I am cut off from before your eyes. Yet he calls upon God, and in loving kindness, God comes down into the pit. Or David in the Psalms, when he's crying out, he says, as for me in my alarm, he's in a bes- he, I said in a besieged city, I am cut off from before your eyes. I'm cut off. There's no hope. I'm surrounded by my enemies. They're certain to get me. Nevertheless, he says, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. And there's one lesson you hear again and again and again in the psalmist. It's this. There is no pit so deep, no darkness so black, no distance too far, no problem too great, no burden too crushing, into which the loving kindness of God is not able to reach you. It is a range of infinity, and it is fueled only by grace and the faithfulness of God to His promise. God's loving kindness is not energized by goodness in you or by faithfulness in you. God isn't saying, I will be faithful to you if you are faithful to me. No, God's loving kindness is fueled by the faithfulness in Him and the goodness in Him that reaches down to David at the end of himself. David knows, I've come to an end of myself. My eyes have come to an end to seeing. My soul has come to an end almost of life. But I know whatever I'm feeling, I've not come to the end of the love and kindness of God's chesed love. And that's, that's, that's reality. That's life. And God has given you psalms like this, Christian, because He knows you and I will need them. We're made of the same stuff as the psalmist. We face the same enemies. We have the same heart and the same nature. We're finite and we're frail and prone to come to the end of ourselves, but we'll never come to the end of God. At the right hand of the majesty on high, there's one in our nature who understands what it means to come to the end of yourself, and he understands that not from without, but from within. He's been at the end of himself. He's been at the end of his tether. He's called out to the God who, who has certainly forsaken him, that he might never forsake you. And this great Savior always lives to pray for you in your moments of darkness and in your moments of doubt. The prayers of Jesus will never come to an end. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Jesus says, reach up to me out of the pit. Call out to me. The answer is not down on a rope with no knot in the end. The answer is up. Lift your eyes up to Jesus and call out to Him. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. I have engraved you, Jesus says, on the palms of my hands. Amen.